Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 151, hopefully with better audio, for the first half of November 2016. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Nancy Leader's current Planet X claims, and use that as a springboard to talk about the various Planet 9 claims that have been in the news over the year of 2016. The main claim that I'm using as a relatively weak excuse to talk about science is the Planet X claims of, well, as I just said, Nancy Leader. She is still at it after all of these years, for those of you who know who she is. You might be thinking that I just did a Planet X episode, but, well, that wasn't really a regular episode. There was no actual discussion, it was just sort of reporting on repeated failed and shifting claims. Also, Nancy was just on Coast to Coast AM after a five-year hiatus, and I want to talk about what she's been up to. Plus, I've gotten a few requests to talk about uh, the Planet 9 news that's been floating around this year, so let's get right to it. By way of background, listen to episode 151. That was the fake story of Planet X Part 4 where I talked about Nancy Leader's claims from 2003, 05, 07, and 2011. In that episode, I discussed how she was primarily responsible for the 2003 Planet X craze. Uh, She was obviously wildly wrong, and then she went through various stages of denial, first claiming that Planet X did come, then claiming that the aliens who telepathically tell her uh, actually told her a white lie and that Planet X didn't come, and then saying that no, it really actually did come, it was just sort of hidden. I'm going to assume in this episode that you've listened to episode 51 because I will be occasionally referencing some of that material and pointing out discrepancies. You should also listen to episode 76. In that episode, I demonstrated that for a woman who says a lot of stuff and makes a lot of claims about astronomy, she really has an incredibly poor grasp of astronomical concepts and factoids. Uh, To quote one line from that episode, Besides nothing in her statement being true, it wouldn't be true even if other parts of it were. I am going to be pointing out additional examples of just astronomical failures on her part in this episode. And so, with that brief background out of the way, by asking you to listen to about an hour's worth of other background material, let's get right to it. Right off the bat, In the interview on Coast to Coast AM, the host credits Nancy with this. Now astronomers are beginning to say that there's something in our solar system, folks. There's something out there. They're finding other planets in our solar system, but I think they're beginning to realize now that the big one really is there. And I just wanted you to know that for, you know, everything you took over the years, uh, you ought to be commended for sticking to it. Uh, because you've been vindicated, as far as I'm concerned. It helps when you know you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to start out with that because it shows a, well, to put it bluntly, a ridiculous level of dishonesty and revisionist history. Nancy certainly is among the first to set a 2003 date for Planet X, and there were several copycats, and she got a lot of criticism, and deserved criticism. 
she was really responsible for a lot of the hysteria that followed for the 2003 Planet X, and I would argue by extension, some of the panic due to the 2012 Planet X ideas as well. With that said, discoveries of other solar system bodies being what Nancy was claiming is, it's like me saying that there's a pink dinosaur flying around town, and I'm saying this for years, and no one sees it, and then I claim that, well, it's real, and then I claim, well, no, it was a hoax, but then I say, oh no, it really was real, and then a few years later, someone discovers giant lizards in the area, and I say, no, that's exactly what I was talking about all along. That's wrong. That's revisionist history, and that's what's going on here. Nancy continued in the interview to make fairly standard Planet X claims, like astronomers have known about it for years, they discovered it in 1983 with the IRAS telescope survey, uh, see episode 54 for why that's not the case, it's parked near the sun, somehow defying all laws of physics, it has uh, moons and a red cloud around it, all this other classic Planet X stuff that you've heard me talk about before in the, well, about a dozen other fake story of Planet X episodes that I've done for this podcast, so I'm not going to repeat them here. But then the kicker was her current version of what happened in 2003, as in what she's claiming now in 2016 about what happened in 2003. Remember, Planet X did not come by and cause horrible devastation as, as she claimed it would in 2003. She then said in 2005 that it was still there, but then in 2007 said it wasn't there, but in 2011 sort of said it kind of was. Now in 2016, she's basically acting as though everything went as she claimed, and never in the interview did she ever mention a retraction of her retraction in 2007. Then in the spring of 2003, it was close enough that people took photos of it coming inbound, crossed the Earth's orbit and went closer to the sun, preparing to pass the sun, and at that point got lost in the glare and things changed, became more difficult to see. People saw brilliant double sunrises and double sunsets on occasion. You know, if they used Mm -hmm. filters that filtered only for red spectrum light, they could see the complex, but, you know, it was tricky. You have to take the insert from a floppy disk, you know, and they sometimes saw the moon swirls, which are like long tubes. This this passing planet, Nibiru, is about four times larger than Earth, 23 times as massive, and it has multiple moons, at least two dozen, that trail behind it and they form long tubes because they get in a dance with each other and that the sunlight ricochets down that tube and comes out like a flashlight pointing toward Earth and on occasion and people say, oh, bright orbs, you know, around the sun. And even so bright they would pull over on the highway and try to take pictures. But other than that, it was hard to see because it's so shrouded in red dust. Right. Her claims here are pretty much all new. She never said this in 05, 07, or 11. As a certain television court judge, who's now in her 21st season, likes to say, usually one's memory is best right after the event, rather than improving over time, especially improving over the course of 13 years. This is really just another version of revisionist history, trying to capitalize on the craze on YouTube of people posting pictures proving that they have absolutely no idea of how optics work, but 
that uh, topic for a different episode. Also in this clip, she changes her story about how big Planet X is. In episode 51, I played for you a clip where she claimed that it's four times larger than Jupiter and 23 times as massive. I even had a puzzler based on that. But now her numbers are the same, but she's saying that it's relative to Earth. This is a giant change of over a factor of 10 in size and several hundred in mass. I don't think that she misspoke in either this interview or the previous one because she repeated Earth comparison multiple times this time and Jupiter comparison multiple times before. So, um, well, (laughs) there's that. Moving on, I'm only going to play one more clip for you, getting them all out of the way early on. The lead-up to this clip is that, with Planet X there, hiding by the sun in some way that's obvious to all conspiracists on YouTube, but violates what we know about how gravity and orbits and everything else works, she was asked about formal disclosure by some governmental official uh, about Planet X. When is this going to happen? Various astronomers are popping up with stuff. They act like bumbling idiots. Oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Why couldn't we see it before? Well, the Hubble, the Wise, you know, and uh, star chart mapping, except Kepler probes, they're looking way far out. And it was right under our feet. It was right there. Then they switched to the Dark Energy Survey, which is infrared, run out of Chile by the ESO, and they see things close in. You know, in 2010, they found several exoplanets closer to the solar system than these other far out, you know, guys like Wise. Oh, okay, that explains it. You know, then we had the retrograde issue, because if you look at the Zeta Talk chart issued in 1997, uh, that Nibiru goes into a retrograde orbit as it gets closer in. um, And uh, they said, well, now we have Niku. Oh, guess what? There's this little rock thing, trans-Neptune, you know, and it's in a retrograde orbit, and it's in the inner solar system. They keep. Then they have the business about, as it is said, way out there is a dead binary sun of, the, of our star, our, our sun, and, you know, and that's included because Lund University came up with saying, well, maybe Planet Nine is in this weird orbit because another sun stole it from our solar system. Hmm. So now we've got the binaries under discussion. It's all coming out. We are poised at this point to say that Nibiru is parked next to the sun, just where the Zeta said it would be, and they, they're going to find it on the dark energy survey, which they're going over the older charts, saying, wait a minute, there's an exoplanet, 2003, oh, right next to the sun. You know, and, and we're, we're ready for that, uh, and uh, we're, it could happen today. There's a lot in that two-minute clip. I'm first going to briefly talk about her bad astronomy, or not bad astronomy, pseudo-astronomy, and then spend the rest of this main segment talking about the real science behind the announcements related to a new planet in 2016. First, she seems to think that telescopes have a focus distance. They don't. In optics, for telescopes, you are in focus if you are focused at infinity. This might seem impossible, but it's actually a technical definition in classical optics that goes back to Newton nearly four centuries ago. In other words, telescopes don't look near, nor do they look far. 
they look in a direction and they record what they see. That's why, and I'm talking here about astronomy telescopes, I'm not talking about like a birding telescope. For that, you would not necessarily focus at infinity. I'm focused on astronomy here. Let's go with that. Don't send me email. All right. Anyway, so they look in a direction and record what they see. That's why surveys that are intended to look for things far away will often find additional stuff like small asteroids within our solar system. It's just a consequence of how they're pointed and where they're pointed. Second, she seems to think that infrared light is the same as dark energy. It's not. I talked last episode about dark matter. Just as dark matter is something that is unlike any matter with which we're familiar, in that it does not in any way interact with light, it only interacts through gravity, dark energy is different from all other forms of energy with which we're familiar. Light is a form of energy with which we are obviously pretty familiar. My cafeteria in middle school was very familiar with infrared light because that's how they kept the three-hour-old french fries warm. Now, there is such a thing as a dark energy survey, which I didn't know until researching it for this episode. But the dark energy survey describes itself as this. The Dark Energy Survey, or DES, is an international collaborative effort to map hundreds of millions of galaxies, detect thousands of supernovae, and find patterns of cosmic structure that will reveal the nature of the mysterious dark energy that is accelerating the expansion of our universe. That's very different from an infrared survey. While the distribution of dark energy, they think, might be revealed by studying the positions of objects, an infrared survey is to look at a specific wavelength of light in the infrared, oddly enough, and just chart objects that emit light at that wavelength, or reflect light at that wavelength. It may seem really similar, but it's not. Infrared is using a specific kind of light to look for objects that are visible in that kind of light. The Dark Energy Survey is trying to build up a large database of objects that may reveal an underlying pattern that could tell them about something that's invisible that's causing that pattern, if a pattern is found at all. They're as different as me saying that I'm surveying traffic patterns which are blue. Yes, it almost falls into the category of not even wrong, but I'll settle with her simply not knowing astronomy. She also clearly doesn't know what a trans-Neptunian object is, despite it being defined in its name, which is a good way to start to talk about the real science in this episode. Minor Planet 471325-2011-KT19, or Niku, as it's nicknamed, is a trans-Neptunian object, or TNO. The venerable Wikipedia has a really good diagram that illustrates what TNOs actually are. By definition, they are any minor planet, so basically anything that's not a star or a planet, that orbits the sun, so it's not a moon either, with a greater average distance from the sun than Neptune. Nancy said that this particular TNO is in the inner solar system. That's almost impossible for a TNO, though probably some comets would be considered as meeting that definition. In this case, Niku is not in the inner solar system, it is out beyond Neptune. Anything inside of Neptune's orbit, as in the average distance from the sun of that object is inside Neptune's orbit, is called a centaur. 
and anything that orbits with Neptune would be a Trojan of Neptune. I'm just giving you Centaur and Trojans for completeness for the definition and classification. We're humans, we like to classify. Uh, so with that said, that means that Pluto, for example, is a type of TNO. Kuiper Belt objects are also TNOs. In about five minutes, I'll talk about another type of TNO. Even if we ever found an Oort cloud object, it too, if it exists, would technically be a subtype of TNO because the average distance of the Oort cloud objects would be farther than Neptune's orbit. With that in mind, Niku is a TNO. It was found in 2015 and announced in 2016, and it was linked to an object that was originally discovered, but then lost, in 2011. How do you lose an object? It's actually easier than it sounds. Uh, if you don't quite know its orbit, if you plan then follow-up observations based on not quite knowing its orbit, and then you don't see it, you've lost it. If you ever discover a TNO or a minor planet, an asteroid, anything like that, and you work out its orbit, uh, one of the first things you do is you go back through any of the lists of objects that were found and then lost to see if you can uh, match up that object to your new object. And that way you get even better precision, or actually it's, I think it's better accuracy, maybe both, on its orbit. Uh, I did cover definitions of precision and accuracy, I think around episode 92 or 93. You can go back to that very pedantic episode if you're interested or look it up. But moving on. What's interesting about Niku in particular is that it and five other TNOs all share the same plane in the solar system. That means that if you draw a disk, that is the object's orbit throughout its year around the sun, then other objects also orbit on that disk. This is actually fairly rare. Uh, we define sort of the plane of the solar system as Earth's orbit around the sun, that disk. All of the other planets, they're close, but they're not exactly in the same disk. In this case, with Niku, five other objects share its disk around the sun. That's kind of odd. And what's even more odd about it is that three of them orbit in the same direction around the sun as all the other planets, but three of them orbit in the other direction against the other planets. We call that motion retrograde versus prograde. Prograde going with, retro going against. So, really kind of weird here. Presently, there are about 1,750 TNOs that are known, and based on what we know about them, a group of researchers ran a lot of simulations to see how stable these objects are in that orbit, as in these six objects that sort of share the same orbit. What they found was that there was a 0.016% chance of all six objects staying in the same plane over a long period of time. The reason is that these objects should move and they should precess, uh, similar to a spinning top pointing in a different direction, except this is the whole plane of the orbit moving. There are also interactions with the giant planets in the outer solar system that should have further perturbed them around so they shouldn't share the same orbit. So how do you get this happening? The authors of the paper raised a few different possibilities. One is that we simply lack enough information about how TNOs really behave, how they're distributed, 
and about the dynamical evolution of the outer solar system. That means how these objects sort of move through time and even how the planets in the outer solar system may move through time as well. Ergo, it could still be a coincidence for these six objects and their 0.016 probability may be an underestimate based on all of these uncertainties. They don't like that explanation, uh, but I personally do. I also like their second possibility, which is observational bias, which goes along with the first explanation. To put it succinctly, most surveys of the solar system objects are within the broad plane of the solar system, so Earth's orbit extended outwards into the sky, plus or minus about 20 degrees or so. Uh, basically, you know, 360 would be all the way around, so 20 degrees up and down from Earth's orbit projected onto the sky. The reason that we do this is because it's within the plane of the solar system that most objects are. Therefore, if we want to find them, we are going to look there. However, in case there are other objects farther above or below the plane of the solar system, we are less likely to find them. That means that our surveys are biased against finding them there. If they're there, then that also changes the simulations that they did, and it could alter the confidence factor as well, or that coincidence factor. Then, unfortunately for Nancy, the authors also put in a hypothetical Planet 9, suggested in a paper by Badigan and Brown from January of 2016 that I'll talk about in a moment. The idea is that if you have a large gravitational object over time, it can corral smaller objects into a sort of similar orbits. Basically, it's gravity keeping them in those similar orbits over time because it exerts a push or a tug each time that it sees those objects closest in its orbit. But the Batigan and Brown object can't account for Nico and Friends' similar orbit at all. Nor could a few others... Uh, others being other possible planets that are out there that have been proposed in the actual factual real science literature. To quote the paper, all seem to be problematic as they have great difficulty in affecting the planet crossing region due to the small perturbations they exert at such great separations. In other words, these hypothetical planets that have been proposed have to be far away, otherwise they would have been seen. But because they're so far away, they're too far to affect these TNOs, which, though far, are too close to the sun to be affected by these proposed bodies. However, the authors do propose that, if not a coincidence, there still needs to be some sort of other large gravitational body that is guiding these objects to be in a similar orbit but they couldn't figure out an orbit that would work to both account for these orbits and to not destroy the orbits of other objects that we know about in the outer solar system, so they left it to be an open question. But, Batigan and Brown, or I'll refer to them as BB for short, did not. They published a paper in January of 2016 entitled Evidence for a Distant Giant Planet in the Solar System. This is what Nancy was referring to about the slow disclosure over 2016. What they did is they looked at scattered disk objects, or SDOs. SDOs are a subset of TNOs, 
SDOs in particular have a highly elliptical orbit, and they are tilted relative to the plane of the planets. And uh, so they're thought to get into these orbits after a close encounter with the giant planets that, well, hence their name, scatter these objects into these weird but fairly stable orbits. There are over 200 of these objects known within the greater than 1,750 known TNOs. What Beebe did was to look at the known SDOs, and they observed that the orbital elements of some of them were similar. Orbital elements are things like what plane they orbit in, how close they get to the sun, uh, where in their orbit that happens, how far they get from the sun, their eccentricity, etc., etc., etc. So all of those kinds of things. In particular, they found that six of the known SDOs had a clustering of those orbital elements that, based on their computer simulations, they calculated had only a 0.007% chance of occurring purely by, well, chance. They also discussed observational biases that could have contributed to the clustering, like I mentioned earlier, but they also dismiss those as being responsible for this uh, very, very low chance of just being a coincidence. What made BB get such notoriety, besides a, a large press release from NASA and the anniversary of New Horizons launch it had earlier, is that they proposed that there was an unseen planet that was responsible for these similar orbits. After doing some analytical arguments and then numerical simulations that generated some pretty, well, pretty graphs uh, that are outside of my field, so I just look at them and say they're pretty, they found in their simulations a planetary body that could explain these orbits. The body would have an average distance from the sun of 700 AU, or astronomical units. Uh, This means that it would be about uh, 20 times farther than Neptune. It would also have an eccentricity of 0.6, which is really, really big. It's uh, more eccentric than Mars. And it would have a mass somewhere around 10 times that of Earth. That could explain these six objects' clustered orbital parameters. In going further in this discussion, I'm going to be a bit blunt. Uh, You are getting an admittedly biased host. I discussed this on the Reality Check podcast, episode 386. Um, They somehow paired it with a segment on whether lettuce was worse than bacon and if cats are scared of cucumbers. What I told the hosts was that I'm not incredibly convinced by these kinds of simulations. We know very, very little about the outer solar system relative to the inner solar system. We know of very, very few of these TNOs. Despite nearly 2,000 known objects, there should be hundreds of thousands, if not millions, billions, or even trillions of them if you include the Oort cloud. 2,000 is a really, really small sample, and likely very biased sample. We also know incredibly little about the dynamical history of the outer solar system and how these objects have interacted over time. It's not to say that we know nothing. Uh, A lot of really good work has been done and is being done to try to better understand these objects and this region of space. I collaborate with several people in studying some of these, so it's not as if we know nothing, it's just, in my personal opinion, I don't think we know enough to be putting these kinds of probabilities on these kinds of things. In my personal opinion, 
I just don't think that we have enough of these objects, we've observed them for a long enough period of time, sampled from such a gigantic population that we know so little about, to then hypothesize that there is a missing planet out there. Now, in deference to the last episode, Beebe's suggestion of an unseen dwarf planet is not impossible, and it's not pseudoscience. As I've explained in previous episodes, it is entirely possible that there are large, unknown objects, and I use the plural purposely, that are far out in the outer solar system. All that we've done is we've set upper limits on how big they can be versus where they are for the kinds of surveys that have been done, and we do this based on how bright they should appear if they were a certain size at a certain distance versus how faint the relevant survey can detect them. This potential dwarf planet that BB found that would fit their observations is well below the detection threshold, so it is entirely possible that it does exist. However, for me, uh, perhaps because I'm not a theoretician, nor am I a modeler, but I'm more of an observational astronomer, I am far from convinced that just the statistics alone is a strong argument for this kind of object. And, uh, well, for all the good that it does, I get really annoyed by headlines that trumpet this as though it's solved science and it's been conclusively proven. One of the big things that pretty much Every headline left out in January 2016 was that the dwarf planet that was discovered was in a computer simulation, and there were no observations of it directly. Same goes with more recent headlines, like, Evidence continues to mount for the ninth planet. This headline was in Universe Today just a few weeks ago, and it was a consequence of the same group from January 2016 publishing a new paper that proposed that the sun's slight tilt relative to the average of the solar system could be explained by, yet again, an unseen planet. But what they're doing is science, however speculative I may think it might be. What Nancy is doing is fear-mongering, history rewriting, pseudoscience. She takes ideas that are out there in the media, and then she abuses them to scare people. 13 years after a monstrous failure that really caused panic from many people, she's saying again and still that Planet X is going to cause a 90-degree pole shift, see episode 21 for that, giant tidal waves, death, destruction, and that the military has taken over the United States, a claim that she also made in 2007. I just wish that people would see her for what she is and stop believing her and stop giving her a platform to spread her misinformation. Real science is interesting enough. You don't have to distort it to find an audience, and you don't have to scare people to make yourself feel important. In the interest of getting this episode out sooner rather than later, even though it's being recorded on November 6th, uh, I just have one of the short segments this time, and it's really short. The Logical Fallacies segment. Except the problem is, I couldn't find anything obvious in this episode. Nancy Leader is just wrong. She either horribly misremembers, 
or she lies about events. And she pigeonholes anything she thinks she can remotely use to support her claims, to support her case, even if it doesn't support it, just because she doesn't understand the science. And so I guess this, well, shorter than usual episode, even though it's long compared to uh, what I was doing a year or two or three ago, well, it just, it's kind of short because I got nothing else in it. So thank you for listening. And until next time. That wraps up this episode and topic for the 151st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. And if you were paying really close attention last time, I used the wrap-up from 149 because I I forgot to record the wrap-up for 150. Anyway, thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.com sjrdesign.net and if you have any feedback please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net you could also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website on the blog post for the episode on the facebook page for the podcast and you can even tweet me yes i'm on the twitterverse at pseudo astro I do read every message, appreciate the feedback, and am always behind in responding. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. And next time, thanks to Read, I will try to remember the third source for possible ratings. If you liked it, then also tell friends, family, and random people on the internet.